Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Cardiology Trials podcast. I am Mohamed Rozia, joined by Andrew Foy and John Mandrolla. In this episode, we will be discussing the GC3 and ISIS-4 trials. For a full summary of the trials, please listen to our earlier episodes from this week. First, I will, I will provide a brief overview of the trials before delving into the teaching points. I will start by summarizing the GC3 trial. The GC3 trial was published in The Lancet in 1994. To give you a background, by the time the GC trial was undertaken, evidence had emerged suggesting after load reduction with angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors improved morbidity and mortality in patients with chronic systolic heart failure and these agents were already an established treatment for acute severe heart failure based on theoretical grounds, despite lack of evidence from large-scale RCTs. There was also lower-level evidence that nitrates reduced mortality in patients with acute myocardial infarction, and these drugs were broadly used in coronary care units at the time. The GC3 trial was undertaken to test the hypothesis that six weeks of a treatment with lisinopril or a transdermal, transdermal nitrate reduced the combined endpoint of mortality and severe LV dysfunction. Patients were eligible if they presented with chest pain and ST segment elevation on their AKG and were admitted to the cardiac intensive care unit within 24 hours from the onset of symptoms. The number of patients who were admitted to the, intens- to the cardiac intensive care units over the study period was over 43,000. Over 19,000, or 45%, were randomized. 78% of patients enrolled were men, and nearly three-quarters were under the age of 70. Patients with anterior ST elevation myocardial infarction accounted for approximately 27% of the patients. Those with inferior ST elevation myocardial infarction, 32%, and non-QF myocardial infarction, approximately 19%. The study used a a 2 by 2 factorial design resulting in four treatment groups. Lisinopril alone, transdermal nitrate alone, combination therapy with lisinopril and transdermal nitrate or no trial therapy. The combined primary endpoint was the same as the GC2 trial and consisted consisted of all-cause mortality plus the number of patients with clinical congestive heart failure or extensive LV damage defined as ejection fraction less than 35%. A total of 19,000 394 patients were randomized from 200 CCUs in Italy. Lisinopril significantly reduced the composite primary endpoint compared to controls with an odds ratio of 0.9, as well as the individual component of all-cause death with an odds ratio of 0.88. Lysinopril significantly increased the rates of persistent hypotension, odds ratio 2.44, and renal dysfunction, odds ratio 2.09. Unlike lysinopril, transdermal nitrate did not significantly reduce the combined endpoint, odds ratio 0.94, or death, odds ratio also 0.94. In conclusion, the GC3 is the first trial to show that immediate treatment with S inhibition can reduce death and severe LV dysfunction in patients with acute myocardial infarction. The number needed to treat for the combined endpoint end and death at six weeks was 71 and 125 respectively. The same effect was not observed for a transdermal nitrate. Now the ISIS-4 trial was published in The Lancet in 1995. The premises for the ISIS-4 were similar to GC3 with the notable exception of adding an arm to test the effect of magnesium in acute myocardial infarction. Up to this point, magnesium was commonly used in patients with acute myocardial infarction. 
it was suspected to limit infarct size and reduce arrhythmic events and death. However, it was backed only by animal experiments and small trials in humans that were underpowered to test for realistic differences in mortality. A meta-analysis of such trials was cited in the ISIS-4 manuscript, which reported a 50% relative reduction in mortality. ISIS-4 was undertaken to test three distinct hypotheses, that one month of captopril, one month of isosorbide mononitrate, and the 24 hours of intravenous magnesium reduced mortality in patients presenting with definite or suspected acute myocardial infarction. Patients were eligible if they were thought to be within 24 hours of the onset of symptoms of suspected or definite acute myocardial infarction, with or without ECG changes, and if they had no definite contraindications to any of the study treatments. The majority of patients were men, 74%, under the, under the age of 70 years, 72%. 80% of patients had ST elevation on their representing ECG, and 40% were within six hours from symptom onset. The study used two by two by two factorial design, resulting in eight treatment groups. Placebo, captopril, and isosorbide mononitrate were utilized, but open control was used for magnesium. The primary endpoint of the trial was intended to be vascular mortality within the first five weeks, but the investigators ended up reporting all-cause mortality since non-vascular mortality was rare and divided evenly between groups. The primary analysis were captopril versus placebo. Half of the patients in each group received nitrate and magnesium, isosorbide versus placebo, Half of patients in each group received captopril and magnesium, and magnesium versus, versus control. Half of patients in each group received captopril and nitrate. A total of 58,050 patients were randomized from 1,086 hospitals in 31 countries. Acute myocardial infarction was confirmed in 92% of all randomized patients. Compared to placebo, captopril significantly reduced all-cause mortality with an odds ratio of 0.93. As anticipated, captopril increased hypotension in hospital requiring termination of a study drug. Inspection of various high-risk subgroups showed preservation of captopril treatment effect. Captopril reduced mortality in patients with anterior ST elevation myocardial infarction and heart failure. However, there was no benefit in patients above 70 years of age. Nitrate use did not reduce all-cause mortality compared to placebo with an odds ratio of 0.97. In a, surprising, in a surprise finding, Magnesium increased all-cause mortality compared to placebo with an odds ratio of 1.06 and confidence interval of 1.0 to 1.12, and the effect was consistent across the magnesium treatment subgroups. In conclusion, the ISIS-4 trial demonstrated that early initiation of captopril reduced death at five weeks in patients with definite or suspected acute myocardial infarction and was associated with a number needed to treat of approximately 200 patients. The ISIS-4 did not demonstrate a benefit for isosorbide mononitrate. Finally, ISIS-4 shattered all delusions related to the efficacy of magnesium in acute myocardial infarction and effectively represented a reversal in a, in a standard practice. So now you have heard a brief summary of GC3 and ISIS-4. What do you think, guys? Well, first of all, it's good to see you both. I'm happy to, happy to talk to you. And I think the the coolest thing about this, as we were talking about before we even started recording, was how much we are learning about this process as we're doing it. Because, you know, we've looked at this data, we studied it many years ago, but really looking into the details is, is really interesting to me. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's very illuminating. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been a very valuable uh, process. I think if anything, it's it's maybe made me a little more confident um, in how I was how I was practicing and maybe it's confirmed confirmed some biases uh, that I had in terms of, you know, one agent versus another agent uh, or so on. But um, I think, I think, uh, I guess to start, we're talking about GC3, ISIS-4. Both of these were really mega trials that um, at least, you know, both of them looked at ACE inhibition. They looked at nitrates and then ISIS-4 added added magnesium. And I guess I would just take a step back a little bit and and say that for like readers or listeners, you know, if we sort of think about the journey through trials in acute MI so far, I mean, we really start out pre-revascularization or thrombolysis with, with BHAT and ISIS-1. And both of those trials involved uh, beta blockers, um, BHAT, used propranolol, ISIS-1, used uh, IV atenolol. We talked about that we had some con concerns about external validity in those trials. Um, but, you know, we, we had those trials of, of beta blockers, and then we got into sort of like the era of thrombolysis, revascularization, and we see how thrombolysis and how aspirin drastically sort of improved morbidity and mortality for patients with acute MI um, and probably moved the needle to a, to a much more significant extent than, let's say, beta blockers did. And in fact, you know, it's certainly possible that in the setting of thrombolysis and revascularization, there may really be no effect um, of beta blockers anymore in this particular patient group, and, you know, and I say that because BHAT was much, was more of a long-term trial um, in terms of like outcomes, very stable, highly selected patients. ISIS-1 was more of a trial that I think can, we would apply if we're thinking about using beta blockers in patients who are hospitalized with acute MI. And again, that trial, the patients were also, I think, fairly highly selected, and there was quite a small reduction in benefit um, number needed to treat more than 100 to reduce death over seven days. And again, this is pre-thrombolysis, pre-aspirin, pre-revascularization. Um, so a small effect that potentially would be, um, uh, you know, would go away if, if we account for the impact of, of those interventions. And now we sort of kind of get through that era of trials and we're on to um, ACE inhibition, nitrates, and then, of course, magnesium, um, drugs that sort of their mechanism of action and how they work uh, in terms of mitigating sort of adverse events, heart failure and death after MI is certainly very different than how antiplatelets and thrombolytics and anticoagulants work. Um, and, and so I, I naturally, I go back to the beta blocker trials and I want to compare and contrast these. And so I guess one thing that just strikes me as I'm going through them is if I just look at the event rates in the control groups of, of patients in GISI-3 and ISIS-4, now, you know, the caveat is that the events were basically, this is six-week events and five-week events. And if you look at ISIS-1, it's seven-day events. But if you if you look at GISI-3 and ISIS-4 after revascularization, the event rates in the control group are significantly higher than the event rates in the control group in the ISIS-1 trial. And so it just really makes me uh, question even more how much those results from ISIS-1 uh, apply to this day and, and how great of an effect beta blockers truly have in patients with AMI in the contemporary era. Um, but in saying that, 
um, the effect sizes in GISC-3 and also ISIS-4 are quite small. You know, these would be patients who had the benefit of thrombolysis or revascularization and were generally on the more stable side. And so we see small effects um, for, for lisinopril and GISC-3 and for captopril and ISIS-4. They do, uh, they're statistically significant, but with effect sizes that are that are modest, um, rel you know, relative risk on the order of 10% or less, number needed to treat on the order of, of one to 200 patients. Um, and so, I mean, these are modest, um, but I still think they're extremely important. Um, and to me, they sort of cement, I guess, my bias that that afterload reduction is more important than beta blockade, especially in the post uh, AMI period to improve outcomes uh, in, in these patients. And as you'll see in the trials that are presented this week, uh, in patients who are post MI but are particularly vulnerable and have high event rates, the effects of ACE inhibition is much more magnified than it than it was in these two uh, in these two trials. So I guess that would be a summary of some of my takeaways. And uh, you know, I'd want to turn it over right now to John or Muhammad and see what they have to say. Yeah, I mean, I'm struck by the. I mean, I look at ISIS four, and there's almost sixty thousand patients powered for mortality, statistically significant result, but only. I think the the odds ratio was 0.93, so a 7% relative risk reduction. And it was, you know, highly statistically significant. I guess I'm wondering why how could they do this trial then with that many patients? And and we can't seem to do that now. I mean, we might get eight thousand or ten thousand. And then what what we do now is we say, okay, we're not gonna randomize sixty thousand patients. To power for mortality, we're going to randomize ten thousand patients, but we're going to put in uh, death, MI, stroke, revascularization, and then this composite endpoint. And then if it comes out positive, I mean, how are we supposed to talk to patients about that? And what's the difference between then and now? I'm I'm asking. I don't know the the answer. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. I I mean. You're sort of stealing my thunder because you know how much I harp on this point before that point. Um, and I think it's a it's just a case of what we're willing to accept as a clinical community. Um, if we're willing to accept trials that aren't powered for mortality, which consequently will give us significant information about secondary endpoints just because of their size. But if we're willing to accept smaller trials with composite endpoints that make it hard to engage patients in, in shared decision-making and talk to them about event rates and things like that, that really matter, um, I mean, you know, I, I guess we're going to get what we accept. If, if you're the companies that are marketing um, and testing new products, I don't know that you really have an incentive to to do the mega trials if you don't have to um and and so i guess i don't blame them um but i do kind of blame us i guess because we accept them and um you know if you're willing to sort of substitute a new medicine on the basis of an improvement in a composite endpoint and the com and and the medicine costs hundreds of more dollars a month I mean, to me, that's a really tough sell from like an individual standpoint and from a societal standpoint, but we, but we accept it. I mean, and not only do we accept it, but in a lot of cases, we're quite enthusiastic about it. And so, um, I, you know, so I don't know why they, I don't know why they would have, where the incentive would come in to do something different. Dr. Ruzier was asking in our conversation before and Mohammed, correct me if I'm wrong, but we were wondering about whose fault it was. I mean, is it is it a fault of regulators or is it a fault of the clinical community? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a shared responsibility. 
I think it's important for the regulators to require, you know, companies or industry who run these trials to power them for hard endpoints like all-cause mortality. And as Drew said, it's important for the for clinicians not to accept the results of these trials if they are not powered enough to show uh, a difference for all-cause mortality. I mean, ISIS-4 established the benefit of ASIN, well, ISIS-4 and GC-3, I mean, lisinopril, uh, captopril and lisinopril respectively, these drugs are now given post-MI. And that evidence was established in, a, in, in trials of many tens of thousands of patients, and they were powered for mortality. And it was a small reduction in mortality, but it was a reduction in mortality and death. Patients who took the drug didn't die as much as patients who didn't. But now, I don't want to name names because we'll get to it, but there are drugs that are people are quite enthusiastic over that reduce one component of hospitalizations, not even total hospitalizations, just one small component. So to me, one of the benefits of looking at these old trials is just to, to look at the difference between an endpoint like alive or dead versus four or five different things. And and now we even have gone a step above the composite endpoint, right? We have the win ratio, which is even a, a, a step above uh, a heart events, just looking at ratios of wins and losses, which is really difficult to translate. So I, I'm with Andrew. I, I don't blame the regulators as much as I just blame uh, sort of the clinical community and the softness of our thinking regarding uh, the, the benefit of new therapies. Maybe, maybe that's too pessimistic. I don't know. Well, I think it's a reasonable opinion to have, um, you know, no matter what. And it would be an interesting, and it's an interesting topic to debate. I don't know that there's necessarily a right answer to it. Um, I mean, I think another, I mean, I, I do think that there is sort of this general consensus in the medical community that, that we need to evolve for sort of like the sake of it. And if that requires, you know, if, if that requires looking beyond something like all cause mortality to a large composite endpoint that makes it, you know, really tough to say anything about individual components, as long as we're evolving, it's sort of a win for, it's a win for medicine. It's a win for doctors and patients. And, and, you know, frankly, in my sort of conservative or constrained vision of the world, I just don't really see it that way. Um, but, but I do think it, just in talking about these trials in particular, GISI-3 and ISIS-4, um, I think it is noteworthy to, to look at, at one, the, the risk reduction, but I think we need to be careful in terms of um, how we translate that, because we know that for AMI, for patients with MI, there's a diverse sort of range of outcomes that can occur after, let's say, they get revascularized, or even if they don't. I mean, let's say it's a subacute MI and they come in and they already have Q waves and they're in heart failure, for example. But but there's a range of of prognosis. There's a range of stability, and GCE three and ISIS four did not include um, patients who were sort of the most vulnerable, the most sick, and most likely to have bad outcomes, which could be sort of a knock on those a knock on those trials. Um, but I, I would sort of give them a pass because there's there's two trials that we're going to be presenting this week that I think um, really sort of target those more susceptible, more vulnerable patients after MI, particularly patients who have clinical congestive heart failure and who have uh, significant LV dysfunction. Um, those are patients that tend to be hemodynamically uh, compromised. And, and those patients in particular, ACE inhibition, 
had much greater effects than it did in GC3 and ISIS-4, which were lower risk, more stable populations. And I guess, you know, my ultimate translation of GC3 and ISIS-4 is that ACE inhibitors work, they reduce mortality short-term, they reduce it long-term, and they reduce a whole host of other clinical endpoints um, that are important, I think, to patients. But that being said, I don't, I mean, the imperative to start them in post-MI patients who sort of have preserved ejection fractions, who aren't, let's say, hypertensive, um, I, I don't feel like they need to be started just for the sake of starting the drugs. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, as a segue, can I ask either you or Uzier about, you know, ISIS-4 in particular, 58,000 patients randomized from 1,000 hospitals, 31 countries. If you have that many patients, they, they're... There were signals in these subgroups, and I know subgroups are problematic because trials are powered for you know the overall event rate. But I w I was struck by the fact that um, patients with anterior STEMIs did better, patients with heart failure did better, patients with high heart rates did better, but um, older patients uh, did not. Patients with softer blood pressure did not, and can. If we randomize 58,000 patients, can we make more of these subgroups or should we just not even bother? So I, so I think the answer is we can, but it depends. So I'll say that there is actually some sort of discrepancy or heterogeneity in the subgroup results for GISI-3 and for ISIS-4. And in GISI-3, the investigators actually pre-specified that they were going to do subgroup analyses specifically to look at patients greater than versus less than 70 years of age and in and in women in particular. And in GC3, the effect of ACE inhibition was actually the treatment effect was was slightly more significant in those higher risk patients, the patients greater than 70 and in women who were at higher risk than the overall population. In ISIS-4, I, I guess, I mean, off the top of my head, I, I don't recall them pre-specifying to mentioning those particular groups in particular, but there was that, there was that subgroup finding in ISIS-4 where older patients uh, didn't do better. Now, I think the blood pressure thing needs to be taken with a lot of salt because it, ISIS-4 generally tried to exclude patients who were hypotensive at baseline. And if you look at like, there was, there was a small number of patients with systolic blood pressure less than 100, and the difference in events was only 18. If you look at more sort of robust subgroup fractions, like systolic blood pressure 100 to 104, like 104 to 108, I mean, th those contain much more fractions of patients and more events, and those those results were consistent with the overall result. And they and so, you know, that's why I I'm not inclined to jump on that uh, older patient signal in ISIS four. Although it's, I, I mean, those were a significant fraction of patients. They made up over half the events in the trial. So. I mean, I do think you have to you have to consider it seriously and also consider it in context with the fact that the overall treatment effect was very small. So right. I mean, it wouldn't be shocking if 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 this group of patients who were slightly different, um, higher events didn't necessarily benefit. I mean, it wouldn't shock me because the treatment effect was so small. So I, I mean, so that's how I tend to look at subgroups in these trials. I, I, I don't tend to discount them, particularly if they're subgroups from these very large trials. I just consider, you know, one, what's the fraction of patients, the fraction of events, and what's sort of like the pretest probability that the effect could be real. Because some of my other work, uh, which involves subgroup analyses, um, 
I mean, you, you, I mean, it's not uncommon to get sort of random findings from subgroups that you can discount as false positives because they, they don't, they don't fit the hypothesis. So for example, if you, if your hypothesis is that patients as risk goes up, the, the effect is the effect should, should become attenuated. I, I don't want to go into all the reasons for that, but let's say that was your hypothesis and you have four risk groups. And let's say group two of four has this significant signal of call it benefit or harm, and the other groups one and groups three and four don't show any effect. I mean, you can be pretty confident that if the you know that that's probably a false positive signal. Um, right. So I mean that that's a little bit of my thinking and how I tend to look at subgroups. I, I never though tend to discount subgroup analysis offhand and just say they tell us nothing. The only thing that matters is is the main treatment effect. I think that, in my opinion, that tends to discount a lot of potentially valuable information from clinical trials. You just have to be sophisticated in how you look at it. And skeptical, maybe. Yeah, and skeptical, of course. Dr. Rousier, before... I mentioned my favorite part of this whole thing, and I wanted to close on it. I want to talk about the magnesium issue, but do you have any other things that we should bring up about the mortality signal in subgroups? No, I think we are all excited to talk about the story of magnesium. I'm so excited about this because I remember I was there. We we're all talking about magnesium in this era. And we had no idea why magnesium would work, but it seemed to work. Nine small trials before ISIS-4 had shown that IV magnesium reduces mortality, death. If you give IV magnesium to a heart attack patient, they had a 50% reduction in dying. This was based on nine trials at a total number of patients of like 750. And the ISIS-4 authors decided to look at this. And you've already heard from Dr. Rousier that IV magnesium had a trend towards harm. Uh, in fact, I think the hazard ratio for harm was like 1.06, which is almost equivalent to the, to the benefit of ACE inhibition of like 0.93, so 0.07. 0.06 harm, that's, and it was statistically significant. So, you know, there's there's 58,000 patients in ISIS-4 and 740 patients in these small trials. And I really am struck by the fact that the signal of IV magnesium was, I don't know, quasi-accepted um, based on these small trials. And then a large trial just shredded that idea and there's so many there's so many concepts right there's there's like a why would we accept small trials why would the small trials have such a dramatic effect and i, I mean i guess th those are the two big questions in my mind i think I, I think the question was to dr rousier so i'll let him go first yeah i mean this is this is a really good point a uh, good point uh, i mean smaller trials We've seen this in like not just in magnesium in other areas that they tend to sometimes show uh, a more positive effect. Uh, part of it maybe because they are really more selective in uh, selecting their patients. Part of it could be because authors are more likely to report the result of positive trials, and journals are journals are also more likely to accept or and publish these results. While if you have a negative trial it will be more difficult to publish. So, so that could be part of it. And I also want to touch on the issue of meta-analysis, which we all have done uh, some together. I mean, meta-analysis is a mathematical method to sum up the results of different studies together. Uh, and often they look very attractive because they will have thousands or tens of, the, of thousands of patients. But we have to be careful with looking at the results because if the studies that go in them into the meta-analysis, they have biases, then the results you would get from the meta-analysis will be biased as well. 
So I think anytime you look at a meta-analysis, it's really important to look at the individual studies they included and see how, how powerful they are and how good they were to start with. Don't just look at the final results of a meta-analysis because sometimes you can have 10 small trials that make up that the number of patients when you sum them when you sum them up they may make a big a larger like the number of a larger trial but that does not mean thin smaller trials equals one larger trial beautiful right. yeah no I, and I, I, that's a great point i think maybe you know an equally good point for for physicians in training and just practice is when giving some consideration to an intervention, whatever that intervention is, um, we should be very skeptical of, of large treatment effects. And, and I guess in general, for me, I mean, I sort of have a general rule of thumb where I'm very skeptical of risk reductions greater than 25 to 30% if they include soft, let's say hard endpoints, but not just all cause mortality. I tend to be very skeptical of those. And when it comes to all cause mortality, I'm very skeptical of, of risk reductions on the order of 10 to 15% or higher. Um, doesn't mean they don't exist and things can, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't accept them just because they're higher than that. But, um, but in general, I think those sorts of things would not would not sort of bear wouldn't wouldn't be found to be true in the end. And and I think that's a, a great sort of cautionary tale with magnesium, which is you can do small trials and, and you can even, let's say, power them appropriately. And if you're powering them to de even detect like an erroneous or unrealistic you know, risk reduction, you might get lucky one out of 10 or 20 or 30 times and get a positive trial just because of, um, just because of noise. Uh, but um, we probably, well, what, you know, one, those end up getting published very easily. They probably shouldn't. And two, we accept them very easily and we probably shouldn't. And I think that this is also sort of part of the cautionary tale of the magnesium trials, which is just these large effect sizes. And off the top of my head, I can think of a few things that have shown large effect sizes that I feel are almost certainly spurious results. We'll get to them at some point or another over the next year or two as we, as we sort of review these trials. But yeah, I would just say kind of have some framework in your head as a physician, as a learner, when you're reading studies about, you know, what is sort of a realistic treatment effect um, for an intervention. And when something seems too good to be true, like in most things in life, it probably is. I would add, uh, and I, I will try and put a link to this, but in 2012, the Stanford group uh, published an empirical evaluation of very large treatment effects of medical interventions. 2012, JAMA, first author, Pereira, uh, and they looked at 85,000 forest plots from Cochrane Reviews and found that uh, most large treatment effects emerge from small studies. And when additional trials are performed, the effect sizes become typically much smaller. Well-validated large effects are uncommon and pertain to non-fatal outcomes. So, it's not just us spouting off about small trials can often give large treatment effects. This has been empirically evaluated and it's, and it's, and it's true. But I guess my question to both of you would be, this comes up all the time in meta-analyses, right? So meta-analyses where people put together many trials and do we believe a meta-analysis that includes many small trials or do we believe one big, large randomized trial? And I think it's the latter, but, uh, well, and, but the magne and magnesium story supports that, but maybe it's a case by case basis. 
but it it could it could also be both right i mean you could foresee i mean it could theoretically occur where you have a bad analysis that has many small trials and when you sort of sum it all up um there's enough there's enough power within those individual studies to have some confidence in the summary effect. I mean, that's possible to occur. So I, but, you know, it's probably, it is more unlikely, but I, but you, there is ways to, even as you're doing meta-analysis to look to see how much sort of power you, you have at sort of each node or each new trial to say like, are we getting close to having high confidence in this sort of summary treatment effect or not? I mean, it's it's called trial sequential analysis, but I mean, I think even if you were to do that with the magnesium trials at the time, you would have seen that like, unless we're, unless we think that there's a 50% reduction in, in death here, like this is unrealistic. If we were, if instead we were gonna say, how many patients would you need to show that there was a difference of of ten percent at a at a more you know at an event rate of like fifteen percent or something like that you you I mean you could theoretically show that oh there needs to be tens of thousands of patients this meta analysis only has a thousand right so I mean you can still you can sort of figure that out to some extent. Would you agree? I would. I, I would, but I, I almost wonder whether it's necessary to even go through the mathematical exercises or, or just m maybe use common sense and skepticism to, <laughs> to, to sort it out. I mean, uh, I totally I totally get the idea of trial sequential analysis and, you know, taking out trials to see which one makes a difference. But I mean, the magnesium story is so shocking when you when you look at that uh, forest plot of that, and and then and then this big trial actually. I I'm not sure the signal. I'm not sure that IV magnesium causes increased death, but it certainly didn't give any signal of benefit. Yeah, and oh, also sorry. you know I want to mention when looking at the forest plot for meta analysis. We often see studies going in different directions in terms of a treatment effect. And I know a lot of people tend to look at the summary effect or like the small diamond at the end, but we really need to understand why studies go into different treatment effect. Like if you have a larger study that shows harm and five smaller studies that shows benefit, then maybe you have to be skeptical of the end results. So I think we should look at every study and lately, I mean, lately, I think meta-analysis are exploding that everyone is doing them, I think, nowadays. And I have seen many meta-analysis that include observational studies with randomized trials in the same forest plot. And I think that's another thing to be careful that what the studies went into the meta-analysis to start with. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, I, I kind of tend to think that I don't, you know, summary effects are not that important. I sort of care about each individual effect relative to every other one. And in some cases, you know, they all tend to line up and be within a fairly narrow confidence interval. And then you can just say, okay, so I have more confidence that that the summary effect, you know, that that you're probably in this ballpark. But so many times that's not the case. And when that's not the case, I could care less about the summary effect. It's better to, to know each individual trial and why, you know, why it its results were its results relative to other trials. And, you know, I think as, as learners or practicing physicians, that the notion of that may seem sort of like unrealistic. It might sort of seem like that's too much. You know, there's only so much stuff that you can sort of memorize. Um, and I, and I, I am sympathetic to that. And maybe that's why we sort of look to, we look to guideline writers, but at the same time, I would sort of say that within 
all of our specialties, whatever we tend to practice, we tend to see the same things over and over again. And, and I just sort of think we have a responsibility that we need to just know those things really, really well and be able to talk very fluently about them. Um, and I mean, this isn't a case of like having to regurgitate like everything in the first two years of med school and just pass the test and be done. I mean, this is like your career. It's the rest of your life. And I mean, that's what good doctoring is to me, you know, being able to sort of have all of this stuff in your head and have it affect the sorts of, of advice you give to patients, the counsel that you give and the recommendations that you make and, and being able to balance these individual studies against other similar studies is the most, you know, it's one of the most important things that we can do. One of the questions that came up in my lecture uh, this week at the University of Arizona, I presented a lot of the seminal trials of, of different things in cardiology, and it's very provocative because I showed where some of the guideline recommendations come from really flawed interpretations of, of the seminal trials. And one of the questions was, well, how does a doctor mitigate, you know, severe knowledge, like extreme knowledge of the seminal trials versus what the standard of care in the community is? And it's almost like when Christopher Hitchens studied for his uh, citizenship exam for the, for the U.S., I mean, he... He answered some of the questions wrong, but they were actually right because he had a better knowledge of the of the of U.S. history than than the questions. And and I, I and I guess my answer to that was uh, pragmatic. You know, when I when I talk with patients and and I I will say, you know, this is what this is what some experts say, but this is what the seminal trials say, and and we we come to a you know kind of shared understanding of medicine type decision. I mean, I, I mean, I guess I asked both of you, how, when you understand, when you understand the treatment effects in these seminal trials, and I mean, and you also know what the guidelines are, and you also know what the community standard is, how do you navigate that? Yeah, to be honest, I don't think it's easy. And, you know, part of it is that learners are also they have to pass their STIB exams and their board exams, and these are taken from the guidelines. And so you have to follow what the guidelines tell you. If they tell you you have to use beta blockers after an MI, no matter what, then you do that. And then it becomes a habit because if everything you study tells you to do that and you see a lot of people doing that, it be it does become a habit. Uh, but I do think it's, you know, as we, as Drew and you mentioned before, it is a responsibility for us to know all of this. And, you know, as someone who finished their fellowship about three years ago, I have learned a lot as an attending and I continue to learn every day. So I think my message to the learners is once you finish your med medical school and residency, the journey is not over. I think <laughs> once you realize you have to spend an hour or two every day re reading and learning, mm -hmm. I think that's I think that's really important part of our life because medicine is changing, right? Like if you talk about math or physics, there are certain laws that will never change after one thousand years, right? But in medicine, so many things will change, and so many things have changed in our lifetime already. So we have to keep studying and keep learning. Yeah, and, and um, I mean, in particular, to the issue of like what what do I do when my when something I may want to practice or recommend conflicts with guidelines? I mean, I always just sort of keep in mind, you know, like what, what would I, if this was my parent, what would I do? If it was my family member, friend, what would I recommend? If it was me, what would I want? And if I would want something that conflicts with the guidelines, then the guidelines, you know, I don't, I don't follow them. And, and I try to explain why that's the case. And I, um, you know, I just do the best I can, but, um, I think that the guidelines in some cases can be very flawed. I mean, right now, um, 
I'm, I'm struggling with, with several uh, clinical scenarios a lot. Um, you know, I don't want to talk about them specifically right now, but you, you sort of have this unbridled enthusiasm for practice guidelines and, um, bottom line is I wouldn't want them applied to me. So I'm not going to do it for the patients that I treat. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, these, this is nothing like where my medical license would be in jeopardy, you know, like, but it may be something that if some administrative physician wants to review a thousand charts, they might say like, oh, you're, you know, your prescribing patterns are X percent below some anticipated norm. And then I'd be like, well, let's talk about that. And I'll tell you why, hmm. you know, and I guess if, if you want to censor me or something like that, then we'll just have to go through that process. I mean, I don't really see it ever getting to that point, but, um, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's how I practice. I think sometimes it's a good opportunity to actually write in the chart why you don't think this patient, you know, should be on X or Y drug or have this or that procedure because you could actually cite clinical trial. And uh, I do it often with defibrillator evaluations, but it, it could be anything. But I I do think there's a, a level of pragmatism and and um and and the more you know, the 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 more difficult medicine becomes. Actually, that's in my Twitter bio. That's that's I think it's true, but it's also makes it makes it beautiful. I think. And and I and I do think that if you document well, and if you do things in like a sophisticated way, you know, and that's an interesting point you make about documentation. I, I sort of. I go there, but I try, I, you have to tone it down, right? Because nobody wants to right. like read your, your medical note and feel like they're being preached to or something like that. And Correct. so, but at the same time, I mean, if you just clearly document, you know, I'm not starting a patient on a beta blocker because they're hypotensive and they're tachycardic. I mean, the, the fact is the guidelines actually allow for those sort of um, exceptions to occur. You know, it's just like, hey, read, you know, I documented why I'm doing this and 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 sort of, you know, that's that. And I mean, it's, it's sort of some of the importance, I think, of medical writing and, and documentation and how, how we sort of relay our thoughts and thinking on these things so that we could, you know, that that our practices would stand up to to scrutiny and i i mean i always think about that i mean if somebody were to read the documentation would they at least understand why i maybe did something that might be perceived as unconventional and i think if if they did they would they would they might not agree but they would be like well there's the justification provided you know and i, I think that's fair enough excellent I think this is a good discussion. I especially love the the, the last few minutes. It's, it's fantastic. And I hope the listeners uh, like it a lot. And of course, if you like it, please, you know, tweet it out, give us a rating, subscribe to our Substack. We've got a lot more trials to put out. And I also, Andrew, I appreciated your giving a sequential um, uh discussion because I think this is sort of a sequential project. So excellent. Thanks so much.